Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, from The Guardian, scientists are reporting that crows and magpies are using anti-bird spikes <laughs> to build their nests. Aw. <laughs> I mean, good for them. Right? <laughs> and it's perhaps not all that surprising because birds have never shied away from turning human trash into nesting materials. Mm. But even experts in the field have been raising an eyebrow at this particular handiwork. They were found to be constructed almost entirely from strips of long metal spikes that are often attached to buildings, specifically to deter birds from setting up homes on the structures. So <laughs> in a way, they've worked. They're not setting up right. their homes on their structures. They're just using this to make some pretty amazing bird fortresses. <laughs> The discovery prompted researchers at the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam and the Naturalist Biodiversity Center in Leiden to scour the internet for further examples, huh. which did in fact lead to the identification of another anti-bird spike nest in Glasgow. While the Rotterdam nest was made by crows, the other three were built by magpies, mm. and they make these large dome-like nests the crows use the bird spikes as sturdy construction material for the nest, but the magpies kind of got a hint of the intended use. So they placed most of the spikes on the nest's roof where they could deter predators oh, like wow. other birds and weasels. So they were like, yeah, this would be perfect for my own nest barbed wire. Oh. <laughs> and this isn't the first time birds have been found to incorporate urban materials in their nests. In 1933, a South African museum reported a crow's nest fashioned from galvanized iron and barbed wire. Nails, screws, even drug users' syringes oh. have all found their way into... Yeah, Aww. horrible. I know, I know. This is on us, right? Even about 25 years ago, Keys Moliker collected a pigeon's nest from an oil refinery in Rotterdam Harbor, a place he described as having, quote, nothing green, only industry, concrete, and bad air. Mm. And this nest was made from chicken wire. <laughs> if the name Moliker, by the way, sounds familiar, yeah, this is the guy who previously won that Ig Nobel Prize for oh. documenting the first known case of homosexual necrophilia among ducks. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, these modern, interesting times are giving him so much material. He gets around, field. man. <laughs> he really does. So earlier in the month, a European team of researchers warned that nearly 200 bird species build nests with our trash that is, in fact, potentially dangerous. So yeah, we've talked about awful syringes, but this also includes cigarette butts, plastic mm. bags, Plastics, fishing right. nets. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely the plastics. Dr. Jim Reynolds, an ornithologist, said he was amazed at the anti-bird spikes, but added that if any group of birds was going to do it, it would be the corvids because they're known for their cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, it also might even be a way to impress potential mates, mm. which begs the like, what is the next Mad Max aesthetic iteration of Corvids? Because I think we're close. Yeah, right? it's like wearing the skulls of your enemies. Like it's very 100%. much- 100%. Because that's the thing, <laughs> like you pick up trash on the ground. I'm like, okay, they're using what they can find. When you deliberately rip apart these anti-bird spikes and then use them as your own defense on the top of your nest, that's like a, a, a thumb in the eye of humanity. Right. Like if we've discovered tool behavior in Corvids, like they're going straight to weapons. And guess what, mom and dad? They learned it from watching us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all the drug needles. They learned that too. <laughs> oh, let's hope not. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay, I have a little heavier subject matter today. This comes from the BBC, the English city facing up to its troubled past. Uh-oh. I know we tend to get a bit nearsighted here in the U.S. when it comes to the topic of slavery, and we may forget or never have learned just how much England impacted and benefit from the trading of human mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. Bristol, perhaps more than any other city in the UK, has proactively sought to reconcile its dark past and present rather than ignoring it. Oh, that's which nice. Is a great role model, right? Yeah. So there's a dark plaque decorating an empty plinth in the city of Bristol. And it says, erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. A plinth, if you don't know, because I didn't, is just the statue base. And as you likely guessed, that most virtuous son was a 7th century merchant named Edward Colston, who oversaw the enslavement of 84,000 Africans, (gasps) 19,000 of whom are thought to have died on the journey Mm. to the Americas. Wow. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. plinth worthy, right? Yeah. When the Victorians erected a statue, they ignored that part of his life. (laughs) He was often revered for his philanthropic work. He founded schools, churches, and almshouses, basically just houses that they buy that house poor people. Mm -hmm. Poor white people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. It was implied because it was earlier than 1960. Right, right, right. So they erected a statue of him two centuries after his death. But on June 7th, 2020, the statue came down, splattered with red paint and blue graffiti and thrown into the harbor. That date should feel familiar, but I'm going to come back to it a little later. Bristol's location enables the city to become heavily involved in the slave trade. Though few slaves ever came to Bristol, the city shipped goods from Europe to Africa, sent slaves to the Americas, and brought commodities like tobacco, sugar back to Europe. Bristol ships likely trafficked an estimated 486,000 people between 1698 and the abolition of the trade wow. in 1807 making it the third largest slave trading port in England behind Liverpool and London. Mm. And as expected, with all that money, the city transformed during those years. And central to that transformation was Carlston. So the article goes on into some history about the man, but meh. (laughs) (laughs) He worked his way up to finally sit on the board of the Royal African Company as deputy governor. They had a monopoly on the slave markets in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And as mentioned before, 84,000 can be attributed to his boats. Wow. He used those profits to found Bristol's Collegiate School. And there's a hospital, too, that he founded there. And I know y'all are worried about what happened to the family after slavery was abolished. Like, how did they get by? Oh, no. (laughs) 
<laughs> Following the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, slave owners were compensated with vast sums of money by the oh. British government. <laughs> of course. A debt so large that British taxpayers only finished paying it off in 2015. What? <gasps> yeah. And so even more cash was available to invest in the city that's still very much visible today. Wow. There's also another of the city's famous sons, Joseph Storrs Fry, who imported slave-grown cocoa to Bristol, commercialized chocolate eating, and founded a company that eventually merged with Cadbury's. Mm. Mm. So he was like the Wonka prototype. Yeah, if Wonka... Well, I was just well he Wonka did have slaves. slaves. But he did. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. However, again, for Carlston, the dark side of his story didn't fit with the philanthropic narrative the Victorians wanted to promote in 19th century Bristol that held an annual Colston Day celebration. (laughs) Following increased immigration after World War II, the city began to question not only its past, but how it treats its increasingly diverse community. Mm. Which leads us back to that date I mentioned earlier in 2020. The statue came down during the height of the Black Lives Matters protest. Mm-hmm. And here's my editorializing real quick. As someone who watches a lot of British television and F1, I saw the impact of what we were doing here in the U.S. make its way over mm-hmm. the seas. And some started to institute some change, some better than others. Mm. But I think it's a, what Bristol is doing is a good example. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would have happened if not for the Black Lives Matter here in the U.S. Yeah. So back to the article. As expected, even in the U.K., the toppling of statues and renaming of Bristol's institutions came up against fierce opposition. Of course. Yeah. Conservative politicians like Home Secretary Priti Patel described the changes in Bristol as utterly disgraceful. While many right-wing news outlets alleged that Colson was being erased from Bristol's history. You all heard this. Mm-hmm. And it's all the same said, stuff, yeah. Yeah, that we shouldn't judge historical characters on modern morals. <laughs> As the author notes, it does a disservice to abolitionists of the time to say they didn't know it was immoral. Mm-hmm. And second, it's not erasing history. In fact, it's the opposite. It was the Victorians who were attempting to erase history Mm -hmm. by leaving out those details, right? Yep. The bare plinth speaks louder than any statue ever did. So they're not planning to replace anything. They're just going to leave it empty. Well, that leads to another problem, right? What do you do with the old statue? Mm -hmm. What do you leave it in the harbor, re-raise it? They decided to bring the statue in the museum. The plinth is bare, Mm -hmm. but left all the graffiti Mm. on the statue. Yes, two historical events for one. Exactly. So it retains all of its historical context. And in the picture in the article, it's laying on its back. I'm not sure if that's how it's being permanently displayed. <laughs> Just leave I it there. I do hope so. Uh, but yeah, again, I thought this was a lovely and a good role model for what we can do with some of the remaining statues that we have here in the United States that should definitely come down. Yeah. And they took out just for the other college university, they just took the name off, basically, mm. but it still serves the same function. It doesn't have to be called the Colston House of whatever. Right. right. The attachment to names is such a particular nostalgia addiction in the human mind. I mm-hmm. mean, the names are always necessarily going to evolve because those references are going to be outdated. They're going to be replaced by something bigger, better. That has always been the case. Yeah, but that's the fear, right? You're sitting there trying to focus on your own legacy and this idea that maybe you do all this 
work and establish your legacy and get it put all over a school. And then at some point they take it down again. So you're like, what is my legacy even going to be worth, even if I manage well, it? Which yeah, you won't. but that's your own existential nihilism to face. We all have to do that. Don't <laughs> continue to inflict trauma on everybody else by... Well, anyway, I got feels on this. Yeah, I don't know. My favorite one is when the, it's usually a public school. They don't have the money to change the signs and the stationery. So they take whatever last name is the school's name and they say, well, it's not Robert E. Lee. It's this other Lee who was a better person. Jamie Lee. But <laughs> we're not having to change anything. So it's fine. <laughs> that's and, less lazy marketing than it is the sad state of funding. Right. Of and that's the, they the genuinely US. are like, look, a sign outside our school is $10,000. Do you want that yeah. or do you want books yeah. for your kids this year? Hey, you know what? We might have the Crypto.com elementary school if things keep going this way, right? right. Well, it depends on the books you want to put in there. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. As a teacher, that's where I'm a little bit. uh, Sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Next up, we've got a little bit of a mind bender from IAI News called The Microorganism That Shaped Humanity. Mm. And the fundamental question the author wants to examine with this is, what does it mean for an animal to be domesticated? Because there are lots of examples of mutualism in nature, right, where two creatures are both benefiting each other. But when it comes to domestication, we're really talking about a relationship that's a lot more one-sided, where one creature, generally us, has dominated an animal to the point that they serve us without really getting a whole lot out of it themselves. And in fact, there are two official features that really define when a relationship is domestication. First, the domesticated animal has an increased evolutionary fitness, which means they have more offspring than they would in the wild. But secondly, in contrast, the well-being of the individual is notably worse off. And we can see this in factory farming, right, where the animals are suffering, but also evolutionarily thriving from a pure having babies standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so the author's argument here is that given this definition of domestication, it's actually pretty accurate to say that yeast has domesticated humans. (gasps) Yeah. So here's how we get there. There are numerous species of yeast, but generally speaking, they are single celled fungi that eat sugar and produce alcohol as waste. And the evolutionary challenge for yeast has always been that they are not mobile. So in order to get to new sources of food, they have to hitch a ride on other organisms. And we can see a clear mutualism in the relationship between, for example, yeast and wasps, where the yeast produces an aroma that draws in the wasp to ultimately carry it elsewhere, but also helps the wasp find sources of food better than it could on its own. So this is mutually beneficial and clearly not domestication. Apes, on the other hand, developed a very different relationship with yeast, which is commonly known as the drunken monkey hypothesis. (laughs) So according to this hypothesis, as primates grew larger over millions of years, they started spending more and more time on the forest floor because they were basically too heavy to get up in the trees anymore and thus began to eat more rotten fruit that had fallen to the ground. (laughs) And sure enough, about 10 million years ago, we see a new gene emerge that allowed apes to metabolize alcohol 40 times better than their unmutated ancestors. They also developed new receptors for lactic acid, which had a calming effect on the ape's immune system when fermented foods were eaten. And at the same time, they also developed taste receptors and a clear preference for sour foods. All of this made apes good carriers for yeast, just like the wasps, because they could digest the rotten fruit, it made them healthier, they liked the taste of it, 
And all that meant they would travel to find more and ultimately spread the yeast to new sources of sugar. Hmm. And this mutualistic relationship goes on for about 9 million years, where we see yeast spreading to new parts of the world that wasps could never get to. And we also see ancient humans starting to deliberately ferment foods as a method of food preservation, which benefited them as well. But then we get to the key moment when the author says the yeast officially domesticated us. Around 13,000 years ago, humans began to develop agriculture and specifically to grow grains in order to ferment beer. And this development of human settlements definitely benefited both the yeast and the humans in terms of the number of offspring that each one got to have. But it made the lives of individual humans notably worse off because (laughs) settlements led directly to social stratification, which left most people in relative poverty compared to their leaders. And settlements also brought the spread of disease. Which, if you think about it, it's kind of like the yeast started factory farming us for its own benefit, right? Oh, this is so trippy. Yeah. What's more, yeast around this time began to evolve to create more and more alcohol during fermentation, which you could look at as being something humans selectively did to the yeast because we wanted more alcohol for less work. But you could also very much see it as the yeast finding better ways to control us and thus spread itself more efficiently. (laughs) Some scientists have even argued that keeping us drunk has helped us tolerate each other in such close quarters. (laughs) And here again, we see that the more we drink, the worse the individual human life is because we now know that consuming more alcohol leads to a greater chance of dementia and even some forms of cancer. We are suffering individually. And meanwhile, the life of an individual yeast cell has stayed pretty much the same as before. They've kept the same lifespan, the same rates of disease for millions of years. The author even goes so far as to declare that we call our current epoch the Anthropocene for humanity, but really we should call it the Yeastocene because they (laughs) far outnumber us and are, quote, living their best lives. Well, yeah, that makes it easy. Then the purpose of life is what the yeast tells me it is. Exactly. That's right. They, they, now easy. you're not responsible anymore. That's true. I'm not responsible. Yeah. <laughs> it's the yeast inside of me that's controlling me. I'm just domesticated. That's I right. don't know any better. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. We're going to take a detour via life science with the news that a Kentucky man has found over 700 Civil War era coins buried in his cornfield. Oh, yeah. It's quite the haul. It includes hundreds of U.S. coin pieces dating to between 1840 and 1863. There's a short video, the man who discovered the hoard, whose identity and specific location have not been revealed to the public. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because he's a really good counterfeiter. (laughs) (laughs) Also possible. Yep. Hold your horses. But I mean, yeah, he made a video. You can find it. And in the video, he says, this is the most insane thing ever. Those are all $1 gold coins, $20 gold coins, $10 gold coins as he aims his camera at the artifacts that are just tumbling out of the dirt. Now, the rarest is the 1863p $20 one ounce gold Liberty coin. And that's because just one of these coins can go for six figures at auction. Mm -hmm. And the $20 Liberty coins in the hoard are even rarer because they do not include In God We Trust, which was added in 1866 after the end of the Civil War. So potentially more important, though, is what the hoard can tell us about America's history during an extremely tumultuous period. 
Ryan McNutt, a conflict archaeologist at Georgia Southern University, and he's heard about but not seen the hoard, but mm. certainly had some thoughts about it. Uh, he told Life Science in an email that, quote, Given the time period and the location in Kentucky, which was neutral at the time, it is entirely possible that this was buried in advance of Confederate John Hunt Morgan's June to July 1863 raid, which, hmm. ooh, that's pretty specific, right? Yeah. But it isn't unheard of because many wealthy Kentuckians are rumored to have buried huge sums of money to prevent it from being stolen by the Confederacy. James Langstaff left a letter saying he had buried $20,000 in coins on his property in Paducah. William Pettit buried 80000 worth of gold wow. coins near Lexington. Yeah, and Confederate soldiers quarantined for measles reportedly stole payroll and hid it in a cave in Cumberland Gap. But none of those caches has ever been recovered. So get out those spades and go to Kentucky, y'all. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, there's stuff to be found for sure. There is definitely stuff to be found. And although the hoard coins are considered federal currency, mm -hmm. McNutt said it may be the result of a Kentuckian's dealings with the federal government. So they may have been dealings that it would have been wise at the time to conceal from a Confederate raiding party. <laughs> because, you know, many Americans affected by the Civil War did become quite experienced with hiding goods and valuables like you do. Mm -hmm. Now, most concentrations of historical artifacts found on private land, they usually end up going to market or being collected without archaeological consultation. And this is according to McNutt. Quote, as a conflict archaeologist, I find this loss of information particularly frustrating because hordes have an incredible amount of information about the person who collected the objects. They can offer archaeologists insight into a brief window in time. There's no law that says you have to report it to an archaeologist. But McNutt has been doing the work, developing close relationships with landowners. He firmly believes that education and outreach are key to learn more about these kinds of hordes. So it's entirely up to the landowner, McNutt admits. It's a snapshot of the past lost forever, though, if you do not engage with an archaeologist. Plus, I mean, how cool is it to, like, tell your friends, Lo, yeah, I just hired a conflict archaeologist. Yeah, to... he's got him on my payroll because I can afford it now. Like... <laughs> that is such a wealthy landowner flex, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> my dad was paid in rare coins huh. one time because the guy couldn't pay for his lawyer fees so he's like i've got all these coins i think he fleeced my dad a little yeah probably they were worth a lot more than they actually were you're just yeah. gonna have to trust me on what they're worth i mean i could sell them and get the cash that they're worth and give it to you but let's not have the middleman in this let's just <laughs> next link next link okay any classic Simpsons fan out there that remember an episode where the family goes to Australia and Homer is shown a toilet that flushes the right way, the American <gasps> way, <laughs> counterclockwise? Yes! Nope, yep, not at all. Yep. Even does a little <laughs> cry while it happens. Well, this article from The Conversation asks, does the direction of water rotate down the drain depend on which hemisphere you're in? I mean, I had always heard it does, yeah. but I'm assuming that this article is going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assumed it did, too, because yeah, I take Simpsons as fact most of right, the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> but in countries near the Earth's equator, tourists are often dazzled by demonstrations of a mysterious physical phenomenon. A presenter will position three buckets of water, one in the northern hemisphere, one in the southern, and one directly on the equator, and let the water drain out. 
they'll see that as the water drains, water in the northern bucket rotates in one direction, water in the southern bucket rotates the other, and the water at the equator doesn't rotate at all. This intriguing nature of the Coriolis effect has led to many appearances in urban legends and in pop culture, like The Simpsons used to be Uh many years ago. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The Coriolis effect is based on the idea that the spinning of the Earth introduces a physical force. This effect causes objects on the surface of the Earth to be deflected in different directions depending upon its location north or south of the equator. It is a real thing that does impact the behavior of things like hurricanes. But the spinning of the Earth has very little effect on how water behaves in your sink. Hmm. And as it usually goes, there's math involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Geophysicists use certain mathematical equations known as Navier-Stokes equations. The Navier-Stokes equations relate to the change of fluid velocity subject to their physical constraints, right? So what is the math on a wave pool would be kind Mm. of a way to think about that, right? But this is where it gets fun, for mathematicians at least. These equations are so difficult to solve that you would win a millennium prize and $1 million if you can. Although there is no known complete solution to Navier-Stokes equations, meteorologists and physical oceanographers can still obtain useful partial solutions. And this is where it gets a little more intense. They are comparing various terms in the equations to determine which ones are most important. Then they come up with ratios, but those ratios have no associated physical units. It's kind of a hypothetical. Hmm. earning them the name dimensionless numbers. In context of the Coriolis effect, one of the most important dimensionless numbers is the Rosby number, named for a 20th century meteorologist. The Rosby number compares the dynamics of fluids with the Earth's rotation rate. A small number indicates that the Coriolis effect has a strong effect on the system, while a large Rosby number signifies that the Coriolis force has negligible effect. So the average hurricane would have a number of one. Right. And the same math that applies to the large scale phenomenon can again apply to the bathroom sink as well. And in this setting, the Rosby number would be much larger than one, more like 10,000 times larger. Hmm. So even though the water swirls down the drain may be consistent, that isn't due to the Coriolis effect. So what are the tourists seeing then? Yeah. Charlatanism. <gasps> Mm -hmm. They show a couple of YouTube videos in the article with street demonstrators on the equator. And in one, the water in the northern hemisphere rotates counterclockwise. Uh, And in the other, it rotates in the other direction. Yeah. The article just leaves it at that, right? They're just like, it's not the Coriolis effect. Okay, done. Yeah, they're scamming you. We're not going to reveal the magician's secrets. Like- <laughs> I, I had to dig in a little bit deeper, as I do. And apparently, the direction in which the water goes down the plug hole is determined by several factors, such as the shape of the basin sure. and the way the water is moving before the plug is removed. Mm-hmm. So this time, and only this time, it seems like the Simpsons got it wrong. <laughs> Well, I mean, we can give them one out of, what, 40 years of being right? Uh-huh. I mean, you know. Exactly. <laughs> of predicting eerily the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. So this next article is about a topic that seems to come up again and again every few years in a we finally know why kind of way. And then it turns out, no, we didn't. <laughs> It's called, We Finally Know Why Ancient Roman Concrete Stood the Test of Time. Hmm. 
And it's not that we've been completely wrong in the past. It's just that every time we find one piece of the puzzle, you get this cascade of articles about it because for some reason, Roman concrete is just like this slap in the face to modern engineering. Like we really (laughs) want to know. I think because it sets wet or something like that. That is part of it. But even our best concrete disintegrates after a few decades Mm -hmm. and the Colosseum is still standing 2000 years later. It's Mm -hmm. super strong. So one of the most recent theories that you've probably heard of is volcanic ash, or Mm -hmm. more specifically, a mix of volcanic ash and lime known as Pozzolana, which is named after the Italian city of Pozzuoli, where the volcanic ash comes from. And when we initially realized there was volcanic ash in Roman concrete, scientists thought it was an impurity, like the Romans were just Mm. limited to the materials they had. And it took a while for us to conclude that, no, they knew what they were doing. And the Pozzolana actually makes the concrete stronger. Hmm. But shortly after all the articles about how we finally understand that it was the volcanic ash that made the Colosseum so strong, we realized that, yeah, the Pozzolana helps. But when we put it in our own concrete mixes, it still doesn't make concrete as good as the Colosseum. Hmm. So a team of researchers at MIT continued digging into the problem. And now, maybe, we finally know why for real this time. (laughs) Wait, can I can I take a guess? Sure. Slaves? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm sure they were involved, but they're not required. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So the smoking gun, it turns out, was tiny chunks of lime or lime clasts in the otherwise well-mixed concrete. And again, this was something that researchers thought was an error. Like the Romans just got lazy and didn't try hard enough when they were mixing it. But as material scientist Admir Mazik said, If the Romans put so much effort into making an outstanding construction material following all of the detailed recipes that had been optimized over the course of many centuries, why would they put so little effort into a well-mixed final product? There had to be more to this story. (laughs) So he and his team took a sample of the Roman concrete and subjected it to large area scanning electron microscopy, energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy, powder X-ray diffraction, and confocal Raman imaging. And I only know what some of those are. I feel like they listed them just to be like, this is why we're not telling you, because it was a lot. (laughs) But what they found, ultimately, was that the lime clasts were not an accident, but instead the natural result of mixing the concrete at extremely high temperatures. This so-called hot mixing actually results in a different kind of lime compound than what we initially thought they were using. And when you combine the different molecular structure plus the chunk shape, you end up with concrete that is self-healing. Because the thing that breaks concrete is first it gets a crack, and then water seeps into that crack, it freezes in the winter, which expands the crack, until eventually the whole thing is falling apart. But when you have these chunks in the mix, the cracks naturally tend to swerve toward the larger surface area of the chunks. And then, when the water gets in and touches the fundamentally different lime compound, It reacts to form calcium carbonate, which basically becomes its own glue as it dries, thus repairing the crack. Wow. And when they made their own version of this chunky, hot-mixed lime concrete, it does indeed seem to be as strong as the concrete found in the Colosseum, which means we can finally say we truly understand why Roman concrete is better. Maybe. Ha ha, maybe. <laughs> yeah. As for whether we're going to implement any of this, I don't think so, because hot mixing is expensive. On the other hand, self-repairing concrete saves you a lot of money in later concrete creation. So these scientists are, it should be noted, trying to commercialize their newly developed hot mixed lime concrete. 
And possibly it's going to be what we have on all our bridges in another 20, 30 years is self-healing yeah. concrete. I mean, it may be more expensive now, but it's got to be cheaper than litigation. when the right. <laughs> Oh, yeah. When those bridges start falling, mm, that's yeah. a problem. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. From the BBC. I was off my head, says man <laughs> rescued from rock all world record bid. From what? <laughs> yeah, it was a world record attempt where this guy was going to spend 60 days on essentially an uninhabitable rock about 230 okay. miles west of North West as a way to raise money for veterans charities. But this rock, which is known as rock all, and yes, it's the word rock with the word all just mushed okay. together because it is all rock. It's just, it's like little rock island <laughs> sticking out in the middle of the water. It really doesn't look impressive, but the location being, I think like North of Scotland is some of the roughest, most inhospitable weather ever, which is why hmm spending 60 days straight like on this cliff face of this terrible little island was going to be a big deal in a stunt. And in fact, it is a big deal in a stunt because he only made it for 30 days, half wow. of the time he expected. But a month on this rock was... <laughs> was that's still plenty. See, that's when you say, I'll be there for 15 days. Right? <laughs> and then anything you go over that, oh. Yeah, well, keep your expectations low. <laughs> it's because he had thought about following in the footsteps of the current world record holder. Now, that's another oh. guy named uh. Nick Hancock. And Nick Hancock managed 45 days on the mm. aisle in 2014. So Mr. Cameron, the Army veteran that we're talking about here, he had thought about following in the footsteps for about 15 years. He basically cool. had this idea kicking around for a decade and a half, quote, it just seemed like a really difficult challenge, he said. I'd followed Nick Hancock during his attempt, and I kind of put it to bed. You know, you'd have to be off your head to do something like that. And that was me. I was literally off my head. And above the water level, Rockall is only 100 feet wide and 70 feet long. It's not mm. large. And they have a picture of it. It's like a hunk of rocks sticking out of the water. You got some birds flying around. And he basically tried to nestle this like extreme weather tent kind of like on a little nestle side of it. Mm -hmm. And he had prepared like prior to the rescue living on this rock, he had been getting into a routine. He had plenty to do. According to him, he was filming his stay for a documentary. So I'm sure he was grabbing all kinds of content. <laughs> Quote, there was not a moment I was bored, but... In a case of careful what you wish for, <laughs> he said he knew something was up when the island's many birds started disappearing. Hmm. Uh -huh. <laughs> Quote, I'd suffered two weeks of storms and it was literally sustained westerlies for 25 knots for two weeks. Wow. My kit was being washed away. The webbing and ropes were being worn through with the constant to and fro of the waves. So he puts out the distress call at 8.55. The Maritime and Coast Guard Agency sent a search and rescue helicopter 10 hours after he called for help. Oh. As for what he might say to anybody considering the challenge, Mr. Cameron said, go for it if that's what you oh. want to do. But he caveated his enthusiasm, saying, be absolutely sure this is something you want to do because it's potentially life-threatening. 
Yeah. And even if you live, you now got to pay for that rescue effort, I bet. But so. extreme tourism does seem to be a, shall we say, wealthy landowner flex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a very yeah. small, rocky piece of land that he owned for a bit. <laughs> And I know, I mean, I know he said he did it for charity, but there was some, I want to be famous in sure, there just trying to course. break a world Listen, record. Listen, you can nickname irony. your ego anything you want. And if you mm-hmm. want to nickname your ego charity, it can come <laughs> right. in real handy uh-huh. for sound bites like uh-huh. these. He was a philanthropist, y'all. Come on. <laughs> think about the good things he did. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the maverick design choices that may have doomed Titan, how the humble household refrigerator changed the world, and break out the s'mores, this star is cooler than a campfire. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 